You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. To Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me. Why hasn't he checked the children? <laughs> it's Jeff McLarge Huge. <laughs> My God, it's coming from inside the house. <laughs> it's coming from within the podcast. Oh, no. I'm pretty uh, sure it's because my children are at work. <laughs> I have raised two child laborers. <laughs> what do they do? I know Meg's... My- I mean, Meg's just started working, really. Yep. Yeah, my daughter is a she's a cashier monkey at a supermarket. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say cashier monkey. Uh, let me find a better phrase. My daughter is a uh, food over the scanner technician at ah. a local supermarket, and occasionally a food go into the bag technician at the supermarket. Ah. And is working like almost twenty six hours a week right now, which is good because she has, you know, a car to take care of. Sure. And my son has been a network technician for two years now, almost. Yeah, you don't have to uh, pump up his job. It sounds <laughs> the way you like unsimplified Meg's job. It sounds like you're unsimplifying his job, but he well, actually has a techie job, doesn't he? He does have a techie job, but literally his job is he's he does network help desk for a company that sells internet access to businesses. Right. And and provides their wireless network, so he spends all of his days getting yelled at by people um, oh. who are having a bad day because their networks don't work, or they weren't designed right, or they weren't installed properly, or whatever. Right. Nobody um, ever calls him up in a good mood, right? Yeah. Right. Nobody ever calls. It's like I just want you to know that like we've got a thousand people in this hotel, and they can all watch Netflix. <laughs> and what usually the calls are like? Why can't you fix the thing? From where you're sitting, it, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a definitely, it's a thankless job. It's a very, very difficult one, and the turnover rate tends to be very, very high because it's such a robust and terrible uh, work environment. So. Right, nobody likes getting yelled at. So my first job, I worked at a gas station. So I guess you could say I was a fuel transfer engineer, <laughs> uh, yes. specializing in windshield sanitation and lubrication uh, maintenance. Uh, uh, in- insect corpse removal, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. That was all right. I did that for like a year and a half. You know, you, you'd have your busy times, you know, like right. for like about an hour a day, you'd like work your ass off. And then the rest of the time, you're just like sitting in and just waiting for customers. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was that was all right. What was your like first job? My first, I worked for my dad. He owned a restaurant. He bought a restaurant when I was 13. And I started working there in the kitchen. The way that the, labor laws are written is if you work for a family business you don't have to wait till you're 16 to work okay. at least in massachusetts and that's how it was in the 80s i don't know if it's still like that there so i started working for him on the clock and paying taxes when i was 13 or 14 uh as a dishwasher and then later a prep cook and then 
later a host and then later a bartender and then later somebody who if i was ever going to be sentenced for a crime that i didn't commit a la the a-team the sentence <laughs> to torture me the most would be to put me in a restaurant kitchen so oh. yeah i remember going in and visiting you whenever you worked there when you were, whenever you were doing the bartending um i always like romanticize i mean because i've been you know working in manufacturing and programming and all that for like 30 years now and I always talk about that. It's like if I if I hit any amount of lottery. Yeah, I was. I'm at the age now where I fantasize about like when can I work part time as somebody at the store who just says, "Oh, that's over there. Have a yeah. great day." Yeah, definitely. If I could get away with like surviving, just like folding T-shirts at the Gap. Yes, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, we have a culture in the U.S. which is too much work for work's sake. I think and. Yeah. And our what we do for for a job job becomes way too much of our identity, and I don't know it's it's problematic. It causes issues with health and depression and other stuff. And I wish culturally we were a little less prone to that. You know, I'm saying this while I'm recording this today's episode and while I'm on vacation. But well, you can think of it nicely in the fact that we don't make any money doing this, so this isn't a job. This well, is no, a hobby. Yes, <laughs> this is this is this is something we do because we like to. But you, you know what I mean, though. It's like not vegetation, structured vacation. Yep. Like they do in other countries, in France it's six weeks, in England it's six weeks, in Spain it's six weeks, in Portugal it's six weeks, in Germany it's six, six or eight weeks. It's all mandated, you know, that it's paid for so that you have a quality of life that we don't seem to think is important here in the U.S. And then culturally, like, we're not even half as bad as, like, how things are or at least were at one point in Japan where you have to, like, poke them with a the stick to get them to go home from work. Yeah, they have a, I forget the term, but they have a spe specific term for people who die at work on the job because <laughs> they've been there for 180 hours. They have to come up with a word for it, yeah. right? And then there's like, there's the Chinese methodology now that's called 996. I don't know if you've heard that. That started with a guy named Jack Ma who owns Alibaba, okay. which is the large Asian sort of equivalent of Amazon. And 996, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Yeesh. That's That's the standard work on salary. No, 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 no. I mean, we're in my busy season right now where I'm doing, not including the podcast, about 75 hours a week. But right. two of those jobs are in entertainment, and I wouldn't trade them for the world. Uh, speaking of entertainment. Yes. Uh, I have this week's trivia question. Now, last week you won on a technicality because I goofed, but I'm not going to goof up this week's. Okay. All right. So, in Hollywood... Uh, there are a number of celebrities who change their appearances by getting rhinoplasty or a nose job because they feel their noses are too big. You can tell who these people are because their noses don't really look like noses anymore. Uh, however, there was one actor in Hollywood, famous actor, who thought their nose. See, I'm playing. I'm playing the pronoun game here, so you don't know what you don't know what sex it is. Who thought their nose was too small for their face, so they would wear prosthetic noses in almost every movie that they made. Hmm. So which actor, which Hollywood actor, thought their nose was too small and wore prosthetic noses in their films? Did, can I ask a clarifying question? Yes, but I may not answer it. Did their natural nose glow red? No, it's not W.C. Fields. Well, I was going to say, it's, it sounds like it's not Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer either. Right. Uh, uh, okay. All right. Well, at the end of the show, I will mess this one up for sure. All right. <laughs> at the end of the show, I will 
bring my streak back down to zero. Uh, zero, yeah. So I'll be none in a row. All right. So uh, this is the week beginning October the 4th. So uh, I did. I started last week, right? That means it's your turn. Yes, it is my turn. I, I want to say before we start, though, that rhinoplasty is a great name for a surgery. For Isn't no it? surgery. It is. Yeah. It's like you think they'd call like weight reduction surgery like hippoplasty or something. <laughs> October 4th, 1975. A Cessna 3310Q airplane. I don't know what that is, but it's a plane big enough to carry multiple people. Yep. Uh, crashes over Wilmington, Wilmington, North Carolina, killing the pilot and severely injuring several pro wrestlers affiliated with the NWA's Mid-Atlantic promotion. Yes. Uh, one of a- the survivors is Ric Flair. Woo! Woo! I'm sure he said that when he got out of the plane. The nature uh, boy! Yeah. <laughs> nature boy Ric Flair. My back hurts. Uh, yeah, it took him a little while to style and profile after that one. Yeah. Bet. Now, if you look at the year of this happening, 1975, yeah, Ric Flair wasn't Ric Flair yet, or at least not the Ric Flair that we all grew, right. uh, grew to know and love. He hadn't even won his first championship well, he was, yet. He was only 65 years old in 1975. <laughs> he broke his back in that plane crash. Oh. Um, Johnny Valiant, who was a wrestler, but he he later on became a manager, and I think it had a lot to do with the injuries sustained in the plane crash. He was injured yeah. in that crash, too. Another wrestler that was famous on there was Mr. Wrestling 2, who was a masked wrestler. And Mr. Wrestling 2. Yes. Not Jim, the most creative of character designations, Bill. Actually, he was... He was Jimmy Carter's favorite wrestler for whatever reason. He actually, Mr. He had, Wrestling 2. Yes. Yes. I feel and, like this is like the Flashmaster or whatever the guy is that crashed through the wall and ate it. The Shockmaster. Shockmaster, uh, yes. Uh, well, I mean, you got to remember, this is the early, early, yeah, early, early days of wrestling, you know? Yes. So, but anyway, uh, Mr. Wrestling 2 uh, got injured pretty good on that flight, too. But he was a, in wrestling terms, face... And everybody else on that plane were heels. In other words, he was a good guy. They were all bad guys. And in order to maintain what they call kayfabe or to maintain the illusion that wrestling was real, two weeks after the plane crash, Mr. Wrestling 2 got back in the ring. You could tell he was, like, severely injured. He's, like, moving around all stiff and stuff like that. But he, like... Made believe he was never on that flight just oh, to yeah. ma- just to maintain that illusion that wrestling was real. They didn't right. talk, you know. They made they uh, they protected the business really strict back in those days. Well, except for the putting you know a bunch of pro wrestlers on a Buddy Holly airplane, like they didn't they didn't do much, right? <laughs> yeah, you know? I'm sure with uh, him being the only face on the plane, I bet the suspicion about the plane crash all kind of fell on one guy. <laughs> yeah, if that if that was like this uh, this day and age, they probably would have made a storyline out of right? it, right? Right? Uh, there's, a, another, there's a video of him, like, messing around with the tail. <laughs> yeah. Lifting up his mass to twirl a mustache and putting it back down, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, another interesting thing about that is whenever you watch wrestlers do what they call a back body drop, you'll notice that they land as flat as possible. Right. They try to, like, land on simultaneously their shoulders and their ass at the and same ass, time. Yeah. So it distributes the, the landing evenly, and it, right. you know, it doesn't hurt as bad. Right. But if you ever watch Ric Flair wrestle, he never, ever lands like that. He always lands, like, on his side or on his hip. And that's because of that back uh, back-breaking injury. Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yep. 
It's like if you ever watch wrestling, you'll pick up on the fact that they always land flat like that, and then you notice that Ric Flair never did, and that was because of the, that injury. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I, as you bring that up, I do remember watching uh, Mick Foley as Mankind get dropped onto tables and stuff, and he always landed like dead on flat. Yeah. You know, so that makes a lot of sense. Moving on to October the fifth. 1989, your friend and mine, televangelist and former leader of the PTL club, Jim Baker. Mm. He is con- yep, he is convicted of fraud and conspiracy. Uh, he defrauded followers of his PTL club out of 158 million dollars. That's chump change these days for yeah, yeah. grift for grifting oh, yeah. people on TV. But yep. uh, he served four and a half years in prison. Uh, basically, he was like building up property uh, and a theme park, and I mean, this is like in the heyday of televangelists and right. like and all the money that they had. I don't remember the exact details of the story, but he was like selling property that he didn't even have, and he figured the money that he made from selling the property, he would buy property, and then he yeah, it was. Sold- a- that's a Ponzi. It's it turned ultimate. into a standard Ponzi scheme. Like the more people yeah. that he brought in, he paid out dividends to people yeah. with the money that he brought in from other people. So right. it had the illusion of something that there was an investment involved, but there wasn't. He just took the money and he bought himself like a house with solid gold toilets in it. And yeah, when the, he had to submit his financial records because of his his dalliance with somebody that worked at the PTO club, Jessica Hahn. Right, and that, that was, uncovered the, the the depth of the financial fraud that he was perpetrating. Yeah, those dominoes got kicked over a couple of years earlier because he was having an affair with Jessica Hahn, yeah. and um, yeah, and then she exposed all that, and then it got worse and worse and worse. And like I said, yeah, he ended up doing almost five years in prison. Now, you know, being the solid religious leader that he is, you figured he would have learned his lesson and repented, right? Right. No, <laughs> it's like no, the no, not even a, not even a little bit. Uh, Jim Baker co- completely destroyed and wiped out. You know, he was the probably the biggest of the televangelists at the time, and you know he got wiped out to almost nothing. And then he built up his empire, you know, from the ground up, did it all over again. And then just last year, he was selling colloidal silver. Uh, you know what that is, right? It, I do. It's a tincture of silver dissolved in water that's supposed yeah. to make you healthy. But if you drink too much of it, it burns out your liver and turns your skin blue. Right. Uh, like a so smurf. He, yes. There's uh, there's one gentleman famously on Oprah that was as blue as a smurf uh, because he kept on eating more and more colloidal silver. Silver is a heavy metal, and it does not pass through your system. It just collects and collects and collects. Uh, well, so, at least anyway. he could be an alternate for the Blue Man Group. Need more blue yes. for less green? <laughs> he, he blew himself, yes. He blew himself. I seem to have blown myself, yes. Yep. Yep, that guy blew himself on national television. That's right. <laughs> yes. So anyway, Jim Baker was selling colloidal silver, saying it was a cure for our friend COVID-19. Oh, of course. Um, this was like in May of 2020. Uh, at which time there was no cure for COVID-19. There still is no cure. There's vaccinations, but that's not a cure. Right. Uh, There's a bunch of other saying, treatments. But again, the, the, the snake yeah. oil salesmen come out of the woodwork for stuff like this. And yep, it's not and, hard. And Jim Baker was one of them. Jim Baker, I'm, I'm going to go on record saying you are a son of a bitch. 
And anything bad that happens to you, you deserve every every splinter of it. The only thing I'm gonna say, and and, and don't do not take this as anything that suggests it's a heartful defense of Jim Baker as a person or anything, but at the time of his huge popularity, he was literally only interested in money. He never got into the culture war stuff. Like he he never used this position to try and influence public policy the way that like Jerry Falwell and some others did. Right. And at least. At least that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was then. He is very much uh, yeah, trying to influence policy now. Ah, son of a bitch. All right, moving on to the sixth. Hey, uh, speaking of cures for things, October 6, 1956, Albert Sabin announces that he synthesized an oral delivery polio vaccine that's ready to be tested on people. Uh, this is the first vaccine extraction based on Jonas Salk's patent that he made available to anybody to to work with mm-hmm. it became the dominant vaccine given to school kids that helped to eradicate polio in the western world and ultimately around the rest of the world even to this day so now that was the one that they were giving to the kids on sugar cubes right that's the one i took as a kid and it was given to me in a little dixie cup with like it, they didn't have gatorade back then but it was like very watery kool-aid so like a colloidal silver but <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but less silver, more orange. Yeah, more, yes. And uh, I actually got that vaccine. In fact, I got a- almost all of my vaccines from when I was f- first grade to through high school at public school. Like when I went to school in Somerset, Mass. That's where we would line up and army style go through a line, and everybody would get smallpox, MMR, polio, etc., all in the same day. Yeah, I, I believe all of my vaccinations were done at the doctor's office because my parents uh, sent me to, as they called it, parochial school, which I've never heard that word said outside of my parents. Oh, I, uh, yeah, any, t- but, any religious school is a parochial school. Yeah, well, yeah, I went to, I went to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my vaccinations were all done at the doctor's office. Okay. I didn't realize that they did them uh, for, at public school for the... For the normal I, kids. I don't know how long they did them after that, but it was something that was, no, I guess it was normal in the 60s and 70s and probably into the early 1980s, uh-huh. but I, I got them every year. Yeah, I got uh-huh. well, whatever I was supposed to get them over the course of my young life, but... Yeah, there's so probably I'm, some Karen banging a drum about it now. Right. I don't. I don't think my parents. Again, I'll have to ask my mom, but I don't think my parents had to pay or anything. I think it was just. It's. It's better for society if we don't all end up crippled in in iron lungs or dead from diphtheria or, or carrying around typhus or something. You know. Right, and like you said, there was no patent on it, so. So they where'd, could. Just... you get this polio vaccine? Oh, I made it. I made it in my garage. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> No, 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 yeah. It's got the, the plain label generic like you used to see in the 80s. Vaccine. It says polio, but polio is spelled wrong on this. It says <laughs> P-O-L-Y-I-O. Yeah. And there's an umlaut. <laughs> there's an umlaut. It's, a, it's got rock dots. Is this like, did you get this from the Iron Maiden fan club? Uh, <laughs> All right. Moving on to the 7th. October the 7th, 2008. Spotify launches. I kind of have like a love-hate relationship with Spotify. I mostly love it just because it's easy, mm-hmm. you know? And also, uh, Spotify was the first platform that Twibbly was available on. Oh, well, there you go. Yep. Uh, last Christmas, I asked one of my friends, hey, what do you want for Christmas? I was like, uh, just, you know, get me a, a Spotify membership for a couple of months. I'll tell you, being a Spotify member, it's good for me. I don't know how great it is for the bands on Spotify, but it's great for me. I... 
I don't, I'm not a streaming music user, at least I'm not of Spotify. I have access to Amazon Prime, which I use occasionally if I'm looking for something. Yep. But I've drawn away, I got, I feel like I got burned by like Google Play Music when that was closed off because I used to be able to stream my own library of music from my iTunes library over that service. Uh-huh. And then they disabled it. And now there are ads in YouTube oh. music. And I don't want it. ads in a <laughs> playlist that I made. My, I know my kids love it. They use it to find all kinds of music that we then go out and buy on as record albums. But um, the, the ability to have like literally any anything in your hands, any music from any time and any place, there's just, there's a lot of impact that that has on me as somebody who loves music as much as I do. Mm. I just don't use the service because I feel like it's like anything else. Like I have problems with TV streaming services because there's so much choice that I can't pick. Oh, right. And I have that problem when I'm looking through things, even on Amazon Prime Music, which has only, which has a considerably smaller library than Spotify. I'll look for three hours and find nothing I want to listen to. Oh, right. Uh, right. And that's and that's definitely problematic for me. Yeah. What's good for me is I've been doing that 365 days, 365 right. albums, which I have been following along as you've done. It's been yeah. really interesting to see what you've listened to. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's been cool because now I, I have Spotify and I could just look up whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like one day I had to pick an album that featured Yo-Yo Ma, which sounds like a rap artist, but it's not. No, he's uh, a cello player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, if I had to go out and buy the music that I was going to listen to, I'd never be able to listen to the whole album. So it works out great for, for doing that. Right. Today's category was African. And Africa is an enormous continent, probably the second largest continent. So that's a pretty big map to choose from. And it's got uh, a ton of countries on it. So there's different right, yeah. traditions and music styles and everything and all over. Yep. So I kind of cheated. I picked Diantwood because they're from South Africa. Oh, there you go. So, yep, if we had a Patreon or an Amazon wish list, I should set up an Amazon wish list. So if our if our users ever want to, like, send us stuff, I'll just put Spotify gift card on there. <laughs> All right. Hey, you know who's on Spotify? Our next segment. I'm going to guess that it's our October 8th uh, people, which is uh, the Sex Pistols, who in 1976, on October 8th, signed with EMI. And before yeah. the ink, <laughs> I think before the ink was fully dry, <laughs> Everybody realized this was a terrible contract, and the contract was rescinded a couple of days later. The Sex Pistols were, they were all kids. They yeah. were like 18, 19. Yeah. I think i think the oldest was 20. But, you know, prior to getting into the Sex Pistols, they were all punks. And mm-hmm. I don't mean punk rockers. I mean, they were troublemakers. Yes. Steve Jones was a was a cat burglar. He used to break into houses and stuff. It's, it's hard. Like, you try and get a cat in a bag. It's wicked yeah, they, hard. Especially if you got more than one cat in there. They make all kinds yeah. of noise. They're wily. They scratch yeah. like mad. They piss all over everything. Plus, what do you do with them? You can't even fence those things. You just let them go. <laughs> the hell did you steal that for? Right. So, it's not um, worth yeah. anything. And if you've ever seen any interview with John Lydon, you know he's difficult. Uh, <laughs> you think? Difficult is probably the nicest thing you could probably say about the guy. Yes. Sid Vicious was an enormous drug addict. Yeah. You know, they were all just horrible troublemakers. EMI signed them, and then they had, like, a little, like, congratulatory, like, welcome aboard kind of party for them. Right. And they destroyed the place. Yeah. They absolutely destroyed the place. And EMI was like, uh, yeah, f*** you guys and drop them from their contract. Yeah, I think they didn't have to be Nostradamus to realize yeah. like, oh, 
Well, this is what it's like on day one, huh? Hmm. Mm. Just a few red flags here. Hold on a minute. Can I have that contract for just a second? Rip, 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 rip. Yeah. Get out. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Four bright red flags there, right? <laughs> right. What ended up happening was Malcolm McLaren, their manager, was like, yeah, that's not the way contracts work. You have to buy us out of the contract. If you don't want this on there, you still have to pay us. So the Sex Pistols, whenever they get signed to EMI, I think it was like 50,000 pounds, whatever that comes out to an American. They basically paid them... Not, not to put out a record, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, in, in American, I think it's the double at that time. So, yeah, they paid them $100,000 to not record an album. And not record an album, they did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to call up EMI. See, uh, so throw me five bucks. I won't record an album. I'm gonna, you know what I should do? I should, I should call Random House and say, like, look, if you give me $25,000, I will not write a best-selling novel for you. I will just <laughs> not. I'll not do it. Bust up my writing area. I'll th- smash my chair or something. To show you that I'm serious. Uh, they got picked up by A&M Records, and they put out their one album. Never mind the, never mind the Bullocks. Yep. They did record another album called We've Come For Your Children, but it was never officially released. Mm-hmm. You got a favorite Sex Pistols song off that album? Uh, off, of, off, uh, of, off of Bullocks? Off of Bullocks? Jeez. It's hard not to like God Save the Queen, even though, I don't know, I think probably Pretty Vacant is my favorite, or Bodies, which we were talking about before the show. Mine is, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of particular about it. I, my favorite song on the album is either 17. I like that one a lot. Mm-hmm. But I really, really like Holidays in the Sun, which yeah, is the first song on the track. album. Yeah. But I prefer the live version off of the Filthy Lucre mm-hmm. album. I don't know. Something about that song live is just, it's got more oomph to it live, I think. Yeah. All right. So moving on to the, ni- <laughs> the ninth. I love stuff like this. October 9th, 1992. A meteorite <laughs> strikes a parked car in New York. Uh, it penetrates the trunk of the car, leaving a small crater underneath. The meteorite weighs 26 pounds, which is basically the size, yeah, basically the size of two bowling balls, right? Right. And it's about one foot in diameter, which is a little bit bigger than a bowling ball. So yeah, that's a big ass meteorite, you know, to come clumping through your car. I mean, if it's gonna hit a car, it may as well hit a three hundred dollar piece of junk. It hit a nineteen eighty Malibu in Peekskill, New York, parked in a okay. gar- parked in a garage. And there's the picture, yeah. It yeah, hits the trunk just... of, of a red Malibu, yeah. Uh, red, of which we we probably between the two of us have seen and or put gas in to a yeah. million of those because they were they were everywhere when we were dri- when we were first well, driving. My, my brother used to drive a Malibu, yeah. Right. Even the universe thinks those cars are worth throwing rocks at. Yep. So this Chevy Malibu that she had just purchased a couple of months earlier was a clunk of garbage because she only paid like $300 for it, right? She ended up later selling the car to a meteorite collector, which that's Nishi. <laughs> uh, but she sold the car for $25,000. Yeah. She also had the wherewithal to go and pick up the meteorite itself. Uh, which I imagine was pretty hot <laughs> to the touch. Uh, I, I bet, yes. Yep. Uh, but she picked that up and put that in the what was left of the trunk of her car. Right. <laughs> and she ended up selling that for $50,000. So here's this woman who spends 300 bucks on a piece of crap Malibu. Happens to live in the right place in the universe at the right yep. time in this geological epoch for her car yep. to get smashed. Yeah, and she made $75,000 out of the deal. Now, some years ago, my car got whacked with an awning 
You know when you're in the supermarket, they have the awnings over the uh, push cart so that yes. they don't get yep. wet or whatever? Yep. Well, one of those wasn't nailed down properly, and it flew across the parking lot, and it landed on my car. The damage it did to my car was all on the bumper, mm-hmm. which was made out of rubber, which popped itself out in a couple of days. But the insurance company ended up paying me $400 to get it fixed, which I did not because I did not have to. So I'm wondering if this woman went to the insurance company anyway to have them fix her car. If I don't know if, if that would be like an act of God, though. You know, I'm, I'm going to guess it would be if insurance companies in 1992 are the same as insurance companies today or as they were before 1992. Yeah, they would have been like, hey, man, you're not covered for meteorites. You're not covered for giant monsters. You're not covered for, you know, being like smashed into by another car. I'm like, wait a minute. That's exactly what I'm being covered for. No, 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 no. It's not how it works. It's like uh, you just give us the money and then we say no. Um, I bet you the guy in the travels insurance didn't even be baffled by that. You don't right. seen it, covered it. No, nope. right. never seen this before. <laughs> right, right. And then there's the guy, there's the, the the gecko shows up and he's like, nothing to see here. Good luck. <laughs> Shoot, and off it goes. Right, that blends into the car collar and hides. Flow is flabbergasted. Yeah, <laughs> like so I'm going back to waitressing. She drops her price gun and off she goes. But all right, let's wrap up the week on the tenth, October tenth, nineteen sixty six. The Beach Boys released the most, probably the most influential single in their entire catalog, Good Vibrations, which is produced by Brian Wilson and features like massive amounts of overdubs and production to make a song that is way more layered and complicated than anything that the Beach Boys or really anybody else from that sort of California sound style had ever done before. And set the tone not only for the, the Beatles and other bands that followed, but... For, for sort of rock and roll music going forward. Nothing qu- sounds quite like the Beach Boys harmonies than the Beach Boys. They have That's a very true. distinct, yeah. That's very true. And and even like I'm somebody who likes to go back and listen to like Jan and Dean and the Everly Brothers and stuff that were contemporaries of them when they f- were first starting. Right. And, and even when they first started, they sounded more mature, more complicated, better. The songs were better structured than anything that their contemporaries were doing. I think had Beatles not taken over the charts in 63 mm-hmm. they probably would have taken over the charts and it would have changed the f- the whole shape of music instead of them sort of influencing one another as the the 1960s sort of moved on right and then brian wilson of the beach boys famously went kind of like cuckoo bananas yep. and right around like the same time that, that sid barrett kind of went like cuckoo bananas they should have ran off together <laughs> uh, sid barrett could eat acid and paint and brian wilson could eat acid and jump on a trampoline or something and and that's the end of the then they put out a record together lest we forget uh maybe i should do this as a trivia question later on lest we forget uh brian wilson's very famous roommate yes uh charlie manson who yeah. went on who went on to a career as a great leader of people yeah, he, and he had an album, too. Yes, he did. All right, let's move on to the celebrity birthdays. October the 4th, 1946, Susan Sarandon. Oh, she started in low-budget films, for lack gotcha. of a better description. Yeah, she was, uh, I think one of her first roles, or at least the one that she's really famous for, was Janet Weiss in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Show, yeah. And went on to do a bunch of prestige films like Dead Man Walking and Bull Durham. Right. Um, So had a a very, very varied career. Worked with Ridley Scott on uh, Thelma and Louise and is still active in Hollywood now, but... She's an activist. I mean, she's pretty, I mean, noisy for that now, more so than her acting. Yeah. Happy birthday, Susan Sarandon. Yeah. Next up, up, uh, October 5th, 1951, singer of the Boomtown Rats, Bob Geldof. 
Saint Bob. Saint Bob, and also a, a, an activist who who's who's definitely is focused on on hunger and food insecurity is the architect of Live Aid. Saint Bob, Bob Gildoff, famously wrote the song that I know a lot of people hate, but I happen to love. So f you. Uh, do they know it's Christmas? Uh, you know, a charity single that raised millions of dollars for world famine. And then the next year had organized Live Aid, which, again, was a monumental concert. Probably the last time I had any faith in the human race. Mm-hmm. And then probably about, probably pretty close to 20 years ago now, they did Live 8, which... Um, Bob Geldof ate for six no, no, straight no. hours. <laughs> yeah, it was it was the World Summit. And that was the one, you know, with the eight big countries. Mm-hmm. That was the 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 famous Pink one and only Pink Floyd reunion, right? And I mean that's gonna be something if uh, if if they're gonna get back together. You know Bob Gildoff for a guy who in the music industry, you know the Boomtown Rats could barely get himself arrested. Right. Went on to do quite a bit with his life, which is why I, I refer to him as Saint Bob. Right. I know him most from his his role in Pink Floyd's The Wall, the, yep. the film version, the Alan Parker version of the film, where yeah, he played Pink. Pink. Yep. Moving on to October the 6th. All right. October the 6th, 1949, African-American Toy Hall of Fame inventor Lonnie Johnson. Uh, Lonnie Johnson was a NASA aerospace engineer, and he invented the Super Soaker water gun. <laughs> and, That's cool. And also the Nerf gun. Yeah. Did he do that for work? Or was he doing that like in his like his spare time? Like, you know, I spend all day designing rocket booster engines, but when I get home, there's nothing I like better than trying to figure out how to make a Nerf gun. Well, he uh, figured out how to hire a lawyer because uh, <laughs> he invented the Super Soaker in 1990 and then the Nerf gun in 95, right? In 2013, he sued Hasbro for underpaying him royalties on the Super Soaker and was awarded $73 million. Yep. Well, he soaked Hasbro for sure. He super yeah, yeah, soaked yeah. them. Good. Well, that's I appreciate that. Good. Get your money out of those people, dude. I think that's awesome that uh, the Super Soaker was invented by a NASA engineer. All right, that's and, why and those toys else? are good. Yeah. yeah. Yep. All, all right, next up. Uh, October 7th, 1951, John Mellencamp, who is a, kind of an Americana singer, like sort of known now, but was tremendously popular in the early 1980s and the beginning of MTV uh, as yeah. a pop star for one album. And then he changed his name from John Cougar back. <laughs> Back to his his actual name of John Mellencamp. He actually had an album that that album that you're talking about uh, that he was John Cougar American Fool. Right. That's the one that spawned the single Jack and Diane and Hurt So Good. Yep. Uh, he actually had an album prior to that where he had a, a one hit that it was like a minor hit called Ain't Even Done with the Night. Right. And then once he had that cash cow going for him, like everybody knew who he was. The next album he was known as John Cougar Mellencamp. Right. And that album was called Uh-huh. Like, as if to say, wait, your last name is Mellencamp? Uh-huh. Uh. And then after that, he just dropped the Cougar altogether. Like, all of his songs were kind of like about farming and stuff yeah. like that, which kind of alienated his audience, but good for him. I mean, how many other hit singles can you think of with lyrics? You know, rain on the scarecrow, blood on the plow. Yeah, and I th- I think like Pink Houses was super popular too, and he had a he had a good run of, of hits. Yeah, and and was he almost a crossover country artist and sort of paved the way for guys that didn't go anywhere near as far as him, like the right. Georgia Satellites and others, 
uh, who sort of fell into that Americana, ultimately Americana tradition. So he's still yep. he's, and, he's still playing. Yep, and he was a big part of Farm Aid, which was an offshoot of Live Aid. Right. One thing that really stands out about John Cougar Mellencamp or John Mellencamp is that guy smokes like 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 a John Mellencamp. I would have to say <laughs> that guy puts down four packs of cigarettes a day. Yeah, he's had a heart attack. Whenever I used to smoke, if I smoked, I, I did about a pack a day. And if I was having a bad day and I smoked like a pack and a half, I felt it. You know, right. at the end of the day, I felt it. Four packs a day—that's a lot of jingle. That's a lot of money. Uh, just a, means I, like, I'm just gonna say, like, Dad, gosh, you must you must be sweating those Spotify royalties at this point with the cost of cigarettes. <laughs> if that's the case, come on, I need just, some people to hurt so good. Come on, <laughs> just eating the cigarette butts right out of the ashtray. Yeah. All right, Happy moving birthday. on to October the eighth. Boy, I know somebody incredibly handsome with this birthday. It's me, you asshole. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yay! It's my birthday. Happy birthday, Happy birthday Bill. Uh, I share my birthday with two of the Ramones and Sigourney Weaver, hey, who we're right. going to talk about today. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver was born in nineteen October the eighth, nineteen forty nine, and I think her very first film was Alien, nineteen seventy nine, right? Directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, uh, if it wasn't her first, it was one of her first. It's it certainly it, the one that made her a star. Yeah, yeah I mean, a hell of a hell of a start there, honey. Yeah, still active today. Yep. Uh, still acting, yes. Yeah, uh, another role she was really most famous for was uh, Dana in in Ghostbusters, obviously. One of my favorite movies that she was in was, you ever see Copycat? No. Copycat is about a uh, serial killer that was like copying all the M.O.s of other serial killers. And she was like a, a profiler. But she had agoraphobia where she couldn't leave her house and stuff like that. It was really good. She was really good in it. Huh. No, I had no idea. And uh, and I know a lot of people that really loved her in Galaxy Quest. Yeah. I can't tell you what role she plays because it's kind of like the ending twist and all that. But if you haven't seen Cabin in the Woods, she's in it. And you need to. That movie's amazing. I have not seen Cabin in the Woods. So that movie's great. That movie's actually right up your alley. You'd love that movie. She does a bunch of voice acting too. She was in Finding Dory. She did the voice of the Planet Express ship on yep. Futurama, but the one where she has an affair with Bender because he changes the computer's profile. Um, right, and she was in Wall-E as well. Wall-E, right? yep. And she did uh, Ripley's voice in one of the Alien PC games. Oh, for sure. That's I nice. can't remember That's the cool. name of that. Uh, Alien yep. Insurrection or something. Okay, and moving on to the ninth. The ninth. Uh, okay, 1964, Mexican director Guillermo del Toro, close to my own heart, who not only is apparently a scholar of H.P. Lovecraft stories, but directed the only really great modern giant monster movie, Pacific Rim, and plays Pappy McPoyle, the uh, <laughs> patriarch of, every, of the McPoyle family on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and rants like a madman whenever he's on. Oh, I haven't seen that show, well, enough of that show to really pick up on that. Oh, that's him. That's cool. Yeah. He just yells, um, Oh, the McPoyles spawned from my loins. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, more, more recently famous for The Shape of Water, which uh, caused a big stir. Pan's Labyrinth, which he's also very famous yep. for. And later on this year, I guess, he's doing a dark and twisted retelling of the famous Pinocchio story, which that intrigues me his yeah. take on pinocchio that 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 you got my attention there i wish he would have done 
Pacific Rim 2, but he wasn't involved in it at all. I think he gets an executive producer credit, and that's it. Because it, it definitely needed his, his vision to make it tie in with the first film better. I love his stuff. Love, love, love it. He was also going to direct The Hobbit. And got into, they were in pre-production, and he, he said, you know what, heck with this, and he left. Uh, I think uh, studio interference and the studio continuously comparing what he was trying to do with Peter Jackson, and finally he's like, you want Peter Jackson? Why don't you go hire him? And he split. And then they hired huh. Peter Jackson, and we ended up with 300 hours of the Hobbit movie. <laughs> and wrapping up the birthdays, October the 10th, 1984. This is going to be one of those days for me. <laughs> Sound it out, Bill. You'll be fine. I Yeah, I wrote it down phonetically, and now I can't read it. Chiaki? Yep. Am I saying it right? You are. Chiaki? Kuriyama. 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 All right, so Chiaki Kuriyama, who people would better know as playing Gogo Yubari, haha, in the first Kill Bill movie. That's right. In the famous 88 scene. Yes. She... With the... Yep. With the yes, the five, six, seven, eights. Uh, I love them. Yeah. Um, yes, and she she was also in previous to that, like her her sort of breakthrough role was at, in Battle Royale. She was the one main character that oh, sure, survived yeah. Battle Royale. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. That was a, a really interesting film. Uh, and she's made a bazillion things since then. If you look at her IMDb page, you don't know what any of them are because they're all. Right. She's on a lot of Japanese TV, and those shows have not made it over here into the United States. Uh, yeah, I, I remember seeing that scene there with the... I mean, that's a great scene with the 88s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she comes out and she's this, like, you know, typical cute little Japanese girl with the, the school uniform, and she's giggling, and you're like, oh, that's cute. And then she's got this, like, ball on a chain with spikes just killing people left and right. Yeah. Like, ooh, <laughs> ooh, that's that's less than nice. Yes. Uh, that... That band though that we brought up there that does the woohoo woohoo and that scene the yeah the five six seven eights I I like them they're like a they're like a Japanese version of Shonen Knife. yeah <laughs> <laughs> I I like that whole um, you know Japanese punk rock uh, you know Ramones inspired music mm-hmm. I like it a lot my friend thinks it's the worst song ever. All right, there, Mr. McLarge Huge. Who is our nominee for Worst Song Ever this week? We're not going far back this time. Normally, we go back to the 60s, Bill. We go back to the 50s at times. We've, we, we linger in the, the 1970s. Like it's, the 70s is a goldmine for crap. Like yeah. it's buffet night at Studio 54, and it's all you can <laughs> eat, chicken wings and cocaine. We are there for a long time. But no, this time I'm going back to 2021. That's as far back as I'm going. This year? This year, yes. And Ah. I'm going back only as far back as March of 2021 when Justin Bieber inflicted the song Peaches uh, on the world. Normally, I give a pass to current pop music. I realize that I'm not the audience for this for the most part. Demographically, it's usually 14 14 to 24, I think, is the demographic for pop music. Yeah, and I'm going to say that I, I get my pop music creds a little bit, and I have two kids who are who, who are who fall within this demographic age group. Yep. And I said, hey, have you heard that song Peaches by Justin Bieber? And they said, yeah, that song sucks ass. And I said, <laughs> it does. It's not even really a good roller skating song. And they said, that song sucks ass, Dad. It's terrible. <laughs> and it's that's, when that's if it comes on the radio when I'm driving, 
They asked me to turn the station. They asked me to change the radio station from like current pop music because that song is so terrible. Well, to be fair, it is Justin Bieber. Justin, just the, just the name Justin Bieber. It just, I said just a lot in that sentence, didn't I? Um, it it invokes emotion. It's like bile, kind of a. The guy's never had a good reputation. Let's put it that way. No, I mean he's the, admittedly started as like teen idol. I totally get that. Pushed into show business kind of by his parents. Get that too. Understand it. I I pity the guy for that. Made some dumb Hold dumb on. choices. Hold on, before we get into the Justin Bieber biography, yeah, yeah. let's let's case in point uh, our uh, su- our suggestion this week. And before I do play this clip, I bleep out all the sense, all the swear words on our show, and I don't have to. We don't have sponsors. Nobody's going to um, be mad about it, or I'm not going to get in trouble if I don't. I beep them out because I think it's funny. I think beeps are funnier than the actual swears. Now. The section I'm about to play does swear, but I don't want to use the clean version because it eliminates my favorite lyric of the song. So here's the clip. Right there. I freaking love that. Badass bitch. That's so freaking over the top stupid. It's it's over the top stupid. It's also repeated like 35 times in this song and that's right. that's where my issue with it is 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 it's this is this is i listened to this song and i was like uh, normally i'm like okay first i'm like is this thing all chorus because the only thing i can remember of it is i get my peaches out of georgia oh yeah shit i get my weed from california that's the shit i took my chicken up to north yeah the badass bitch i get my light right from the source yeah that's it that's literally all i can remember from the song there are actually three vocal components to this that aren't that there's right. him doing a verse which is doesn't rhyme right. There's a one by a guy named Give On, California rapper that doesn't rhyme right. And there's another one from a guy named a Canadian guy named Daniel Caesar that doesn't rhyme right. None of it meshes with any of the chorus, and there's no bridge between them. And the music itself, it's like a loop. It's like a th- a 13 second loop that just goes over and over and over and over and over. The same thing with the chorus, which makes up the whole last half of the song, just repeated over and over again. It's like Justin Bieber like was like, oh, you know what? I've got a chorus here that's kind of dumb. Can I hire a couple of guys to like just write something here? It's like it's meant to be a love song. You know? Hold on, I'm gonna argue this point over here. I don't think Justin Bieber thinks that part is dumb at all. I think he thinks that's badass. Well, I bet he does. So Justin Bieber, he started out very, very young. His he was his parents. His parents were very young when he was born. I think his mom was like 19. The father was like maybe one or two years older. He was an oopsie. He actually used to perform like on the steps of some, like a city hall kind of a deal during tourist season over right. in Toronto. His mom had put up some videos of him up on YouTube, basically just to show family and friends. Right. And somebody, some record producer found his video by accident when he was looking for something else. So... The sun just shines right on this guy, right. on Justin Bieber. He has made some tremendously bad decisions over the course of his young life. 
and still just comes up smelling smelling roses. He's only 27 years old. He's still, you know, rocking out these hits. Even though this is a piece of crap, I'm looking at the Spotify right now. I know. It's, it's like and, 10 million, thousand billion downloads for this song. And it's it's the most popular song on that album yep. called Justice, Justice, which came out earlier this year. And it's got, as of this recording, 633 million listens. Yep. yep. Over a half a billion people are sitting there listening to Badass Bitch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't get it. The song is like, it feels like it's half made. And this song isn't just written by him. It's written by him, that guy Daniel Caesar, the guy Givon. And then it's also written with Andrew Watt, Louis Bell, Louis Martinez Jr., and Bernard Harvey. Like, that's for the people for something that's this mediocre. It took less people to do Mount Rushmore than it took <laughs> to write this song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of people involved in this. It's like almost a baseball team. Yeah. <laughs> And and it's just I don't know Canadian baseball team Canadian baseball team and I just I I don't know why I don't know why it has ha- more than half a billion downloads or listens on Spotify but like it baffles me again and I'm somebody who likes pop music not everything has to be rhyming the ancient mariner by Iron Maiden there's a time and place for stuff like this and I you know I don't think you're ready for my jelly but but <laughs> like it doesn't have to be like aggressively stupid and this is aggressively <laughs> stupid don't hold me to this because. Unless a category comes up on my 365 albums of megalomaniacal Canadian superstar, I'm not listening to a Justin Bieber album. It's not happening. But I'm willing to bet if I do, I'm going to pick this album because there are 15 other songs on this album and I'm willing to bet one of them is better than this. There are better songs on Justice than this, yes. It has to. Logically, it has to. They're probably written by 327 people, but... (laughs) You know who I bet didn't have any songwriting credits on this album? Oh, this is the trivia question. I thought for sure I was able to dodge this thing. The trivia question was, there is a famous Hollywood actor who did not like the shape of their nose. They thought their nose was too small. So instead of getting nose jobs uh, when they think their nose is too big, our friend over here decided that they were going to wear prosthetic noses for all of their motion pictures. The majority of this person's... IMDB acting credits. There's a slight hint because they have other credits other than acting. This actor is wearing prosthetic noses in their roles. Who wears prosthetic noses in their roles? Well, so this, we're going to call this the reverse Michael Jackson. So, yep. Is it Owen Wilson? Oh, dude. Dude, you. I jumped out of my seat a little bit when you said, oh, in the Owen Wilson because it is. Are you ready? Is it Luke Wilson? No, it's Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Wow. Orson Welles. Rosebud. Yeah. Yeah. Orson Welles wore prosthetic noses in his movie roles because he thought his nose was too small for his face. Wow. I had no idea. I'll have to go back and watch uh, Citizen Kane and and see if I can spot the prosthetic. Yeah. That's yeah, I just found out about that this week. I was like, oh, that's gonna make a great trivia question. Nosebud. Uh, <laughs> Nosebud. <laughs> All right, so that's gonna wrap up this week. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or T W W B L Y. Subscribe if you haven't already. And tell your friends. They'll probably get all the trivia questions right, too. Bastards. <laughs>